Hooked on Sports. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 61 of Hooked on Sports here on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Copy RSS, Radio Public, and Overcast, all powered by Anchor.fm. Thank you so very much for joining me today for another truth-filled, action-packed edition of Sports Conversation. Be sure to hit that subscribe or follow button to get notified of every time a new episode of Hooked on Sports is published to the public, so this way you will never miss an episode. Episodes come out twice a week during the NFL season, one on Monday and the NFL-centered podcast on Wednesday. Also, make sure you follow me on Twitter at JohnFlynn97 and on Instagram at JFlizzy to get my up-to-date sports conversation and sports talk from the world of sports. Also, this podcast has its own social media pages. Like this on Facebook and follow on Twitter and on Instagram at Hooked underscore on sports. So, Another week of sports has come and passed, and we have some things to get into this week, and I want to dive into the Saints and why I told you the Saints were going to be fine without Jabriz and how they were able to shut down the Atlanta Falcons. There was a lot of NBA offseason movement. I'll get into the good, the bad, and the Charlotte Hornets. But I stayed up last night and watched an epic Sunday night football contest between two longtime hated rivals, the Kansas City Chiefs and the Las Vegas Raiders. The Chiefs beat the Raiders 35-31 in a fantastic down-to-the-wire contest on Sunday night football, but that wasn't really the story of the game last night. I think that this was more about the Raiders than the Chiefs. The Raiders played a fantastic game of football, against the team with the second-best record in the National Football League. Derek Carr was tremendous. What I liked about this game the most about the Raiders was that they were efficient. Both offenses were tremendous. They were able to sustain drives. They scored touchdowns. But to me, the Raiders had to play perfect offensive football for 60 minutes to beat the Kansas City Chiefs. And the sequence toward the end of the first half with a chance to go up two scores knowing that the Chiefs would get the ball to start the third quarter was bad. That they were stalled on uh, on on a third and goal situation that, which led to a field goal by Daniel Carlson. And th- and then they, they go three and out uh, their last possession of the first half and uh, giving the Chiefs a chance to um, go, go down and score a touchdown before the half. But the drive ended because of bad route running and Patrick Mahomes threw an interception, only his second of the season. Then the Chiefs get the ball down by three to start the third quarter. And then they march 16 plays, 93 yards, and eight and a half minutes, capped by a Clyde Edward Tillaire touchdown from 14 yards out to complete a championship caliber drive. And I knew the Chiefs were going to win that game after that drive. I just didn't think the Chiefs needed the last 100 seconds of the game to uh, put away the Raiders. And to me, this comfort behind victory ices the division for Kansas City. And I don't see how Kansas City wins fewer than 12 games. And I'll get into the road ahead for the Chiefs when I pick the games against the spread on Wednesday in terms of competing for the top seed in the AFC with the Pittsburgh Steelers. But let's uh, let's talk about the Raiders, and let's face it. The deck was absolutely stacked 
against the Las Vegas Raiders. The Raiders had a COVID outbreak. Three players couldn't play because they were on COVID list. And not not to say the three uh, three players uh, on the COVID list were significant players in any way, you know. Andy Reid took the, entered the game 18-3 and coming off a bye. And this was the same coach that was ticked off because the Raiders held the victory parade around Allegiant Stadium after they beat a terrible Broncos team by 25 points. And yet the Raiders offense didn't turn the ball over until the last play of the game in a last ditch effort to win the game. The Raiders are 6-4. They are the 7th seed in the AFC playoff picture if the season ended today. Who would they play in the first round if the season ended today? The Kansas City Chiefs. Now, I am someone that is skeptical of Kansas City's defense. That's the single biggest pause I had about Kansas City before the season started because I because I questioned the depth on the Kansas City defense and it was definitely exposed um in in last night's game. But I don't. Uh, I'm not sure about Pittsburgh uh, about them competing with Pittsburgh and with the way Ben Roethlisberger is playing. That they've already beaten the Bills, but let's see them be, uh, uh, pl- beat them again in the playoffs with uh, with John Brown healthy. Now you throw in the Raiders as a team that could cause major problems for Andy Reid's Chiefs uh, if they were to meet in the playoffs. But also. The reason why I wanted the Raiders to draft Henry Ruggs III with the number 12 overall pick, and the reason why my NFL mock draft on April 1st pinned Henry Ruggs to the Raiders is that the Raiders desperately needed a receiver that could stretch the field. Mike Mayock also uh, uh, not only drafted Henry Ruggs, but also took advantage of a team that downgraded the value of a wide receiver. And that was the Philadelphia Eagles. And they turned Nelson Aguilar into Deshaun Jackson. Now opposing secondaries now have not one, but two deep threats at the wide receiver position to worry about, given the fit and the matchups. Oh yeah, and Josh Jacobs is special, and Darren Waller is the second best pass-catching tight end in the NFL behind Travis Kelsey right now. And the Raiders are the league's most efficient third-down offense. They're completing over 50% of third-down conversions. The six teams that came into this week, 6-3. and three, The Raiders, the Colts, the Titans, the Browns, the Raiders, the Dolphins. I think Pittsburgh and Kansas City, if they were to rank the teams in terms of who, they, who they'd want to face in the playoff, in a playoff game, I think the Raiders are, are the sixth most preferred matchup uh, in both scenarios. The Vegas Raiders are a young, physical, aggressive, well-coached, well-constructed team. And the Raiders' schedule the next five weeks is, is pretty easy. They, they're at Atlanta. They're at the Jets. They're home against Indianapolis. Who, uh, that won't be easy. By the way, fantastic win by the Colts taking down the Packers. Th- then, then they're home again against the Chargers. And they're home again against Miami before their Week 17 uh, matchup with Denver to finish the season. The Raiders are going to win 10-11 games and make the playoffs, and they'll be scary. Just watch. Listen, topic number two. I, th- I said last week that the Saints would be fine without Drew Brees. The Saints have a tremendous system in place, and they can survive an injury to the most accumulative quarterback in the history of the game. Drew Brees, 
who has NFL quarterback records galore, is out for three weeks on injured reserve, I believe, because of the rib and lung injuries which he suffered last week. I told you that the Saints uh, could win without Drew Brees, and I told you they were going to take care of business and take down the Atlanta Falcons. Sean Payton proved it last year when he ran out Teddy Bridgewater. I just didn't think Taysom Hill would start. I thought Jameis Winston was the start because, because you know, he he's more of an NFL quarterback and Taysom Hill is more of a specialized quarterback. Taysom Hill on Sunday was the first player in NFL history to complete 70% of his passes and have multiple rushing touchdowns in his first NFL starter quarterback in the Super Bowl era. Pete Carmichael and Sean Payton put together an excellent game plan, keeping the Falcons' defense off-balanced all day. The Falcons had no idea how to play the Wildcat. Now, I understand now why they didn't uh, want to start Jameis Winston, because the only thing the Saints needed in, in, in this situation from the quarterback position was a quarterback who did not make many mistakes when they have a roster as loaded in talent and depth as them. And watching it back, it makes so much sense. And everybody, there, there was a lot of controversy with, with this. Uh, why why are you starting Hill over, over Winston? Um, Hill can't throw the ball deep down the field. It makes so much sense. And Sean Payton knew exactly what he was doing in starting Taysom Hill. Did I mention the defense yet with, with, with all this? Lost in the conversation, holy cow, the defense put on a pasting on Matt Ryan and their talented skill players. They had eight sacks on Matt Ryan, they caught two interceptions, they held Todd Gurley to just 26 yards rushing, held Julio, Julio Jones to just two catches. The only, the only Falcons uh, player who had a competent uh, numbers day was Calvin Ridley who had five catches for 90 yards. That's the scary part of the Saints that isn't getting the justified credit in the media. Obviously, everybody holds their breath when it comes to injuries at the quarterback position. But the Saints have given up just one offensive touchdown and 25 total points in the last three games. They beat Tampa, they beat San Francisco, they beat Atlanta. When you build a culture, and the culture is thriving, and it's successful... You could see why teams like the Saints can overcome injuries to key players without fear. Now, do they have a championship to show for that culture? Only one, of course. But you look at the Saints, you look at the NFC conversation, I still believe the Saints are the team to be in a wide-open NFC, and, and yes, they're 8-2, and, and there's no question it's wide open. But you, I think you look at the uh, look at the other teams in the NFC. Seattle is seven and three, and and the defense is playing their best football of the season. They played really well against Kyler Murray on Thursday night. The Packers just blew a fourteen point lead to the Indianapolis Colts. I think the Bucks are talented, but but they're derived of coaching, and they and I think the Bucks are going to need to change a head coach next season if they. Don't win multiple playoff games this year. The NFC East is obviously the crap show with the first place team at 3-6-1. and one. And by the way, Doug Peterson can't coach his way out of a paper bag. And an ugly divorce is on the horizon between Doug Peterson and, and Carson Wentz if they don't win, make the playoffs this year. 
and the division winner will host a playoff game against the number 5 seed. I think the Rams are there too, but, but I do want to see a road win against a team not in the NFC East. I ultimately think, right now, if, if, if I were to, to evaluate all the teams at the end of the day, I think the NFC Championship game would, would be between the Seattle Seahawks and the New Orleans Saints. And if I'm any one team in the NFC right now, it's the New Orleans Saints. You are listening to Hooked on Sports on Spotify, Copy RSS, Radio Public, Overcast, Google Podcasts, Breaker, and Apple Podcasts. Now, back to the show. Here's John Flynn. This NBA offseason is certainly a wild one to say the least. Although there have haven't been met many uh, many big names moving, but just con- contract extensions and, and all of that. But holy smokes! Congratulations to the Los Angeles Lakers on winning your second consecutive championship. My goodness, they had an offseason for the ages and. They're just coming off a championship. So, what have the Lakers done since their last championship? They added Dennis Schroeder in a trade. They signed Montrez Harrell away from the Crosstown Rivals for two years and just $4.5 million a season. They added Wesley Matthews to replace Danny Green, who is now with the Philadelphia 76ers as a result of another trade. Oh yeah, and they got Marcus All too. Oh yeah, and they resigned Contavious Caldwell Pope. So basically, LeBron will enter a COVID-shortened and an Olympic-shortened regular season with the most talented team around him in his entire NBA career. In, in his first time at Cleveland, he had no depth. LeBron's heat weren't physical. Le, LeBron had, had a good backcourt in, in his second tour of Cleveland, and that's it. And his last season in Cleveland, he took a bunch of misfits and no-names to the NBA Finals only to be swept by a dynastic Golden State Warriors team. Then the Lakers missed the playoffs two years ago because LeBron didn't stay healthy and with Anthony Davis, he wins a championship this year. Now he has the perfect blend of defensive frontcourt presence, perimeter shooting, and role players and they still have more financial flexibility, and they still might do some more. And all I gotta say about this is, wow. The Golden State Warriors would have been in the conversation if Klay Thompson was healthy. The Rockets would have been in the conversation with better coaching and less drama. But you know, Houston sports teams can't have nice things if you learn something about sports in 2020. With Billy O'Brien and the Astros cheating fraud scandal. The Denver Nuggets couldn't do anything, and the Jazz only retained key assets, but that was mainly it with those two teams. But right now, how can you not see the Lakers as something other than the uh, the favorites to repeat in the West and repeat as NBA champions? I don't know. Meanwhile, the ugly part of the NBA offseason revolved around the Charlotte Hornets. To me, the Hornets made two major mistakes last week, that really puzzled my mind. First of all, they fell into the trap of drafting LaMelo Ball at number 3. And I'll tell you why LaMelo Ball won't be successful in the NBA. First off, LaMelo can't shoot just like Lonzo. And sure, he was one of the four most talented players in the NBA. Secondly, 
LeVar Ball will be a source of drama the entire time his son is on the roster because of him believing he can beat Michael Jordan one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, did LeVar Ball watch The Last Dance documentaries last spring? Did he watch Jordan play with Scotty and Rodman? Did, did, did LeVar see what, how, Le, how Jordan approached the game and how he was so great? Probably not. LeVar Ball was the reason Lonzo Ball was a disaster with the LA Lakers. LeVar Ball convinced the team that proved themselves unable to develop talent and develop young talent since Andrew Bynum in the Lakers. Lonzo proved to be a bust with the Lakers, and the consequence of Lonzo's failures was being on the other end of the Anthony Davis trade that triggered a championship for the Lakers. LeVar Ball will be the source of so much unnecessary drama, on and off the court issues, as long as a Ball brother is on the roster of a franchise owned by Michael Jordan. See, Michael Jordan is the Michael Jordan of bad ownership. LeVar Ball is irrelevant in the NBA, in the NBA debate, and the only person who doesn't understand this is LeVar Ball, and he is a complete and total disaster to the NBA. But wait, there's more. The roster is terrible. Can you name any household names on the roster right now as of draft night? Can, can any casual basketball fan name someone on the Charlotte Hornets roster? You can ask maybe 6 out of 10, maybe 7 out of 10. I'm not sure if they can. And that's a really big problem. It's a really big problem for the Charlotte Hornets because we're going to tie this in with the plan. What plan do they have? Give a washed up Gordon Hayward a four year $120 million contract? Now, in Gordon Hayward's defense, to be fair, I understand why Gordon Hayward wanted to choose the Hornets because if you recall as a restricted free agent, the Charlotte Hornets offered him a contract sheet before the Jazz matched it, and that's where Hayward had a soft spot for the Hornets under Michael Jordan. His career with the Boston Celtics was marred by injury and the rise of Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, and others, and his stats didn't accurately represent the contract expectations in terms of dollars Danny Ainge gave him. But the Hornets needed to focus on developing young talent. And somehow, the, the Charlotte Hornets made the Cavs, Knicks, and Wizards look like comp competently run NBA franchises. I mean, the Hornets are rudderless. The Hornets are clueless. They have no feel. They have no plan. They have no clue. And let's take a look at... Let's do some math here with, with the Hornets roster. They owe, they owe Gordon Hayward $30 million. They owe Nick Batum $27.1 million. Terry Rozier, $18.9 million, and Cody Zeller, $15.4 million. So do the math. They owe $91.4 million in salary to four players, and they're not even close. They're not even, they're not even close to relevancy. The Knicks have a brighter future than the Charlotte Hornets. The New York Knicks! Have poor ownership. I've been all over James Dolan. They they had a good draft by drafting Obi Toppin and, and Emmanuel quickly. I wish the Knicks went after uh, Trey Jones in the draft, but you know, I, I get the quickly pick. The Knicks look like a more competent franchise than the Charlotte Hornets. I mean, what's next? Are they going to add Tiago Splitter and Stanislav Medvedenko and 
Russia the Sterovich and Kwame Brown in free agency? Are they going to add Skip Bayless's uh, play-cut basketball team and put it on Michael Jordan's roster? And Skip Bayless arguing that all those guys could win because the main guy in there is Michael Jordan? I mean, what is this? Amateur hour? Do the Hornets have a plan? The answer is no. And to recap, other things I liked out of free out of free agency uh, so far that the, the contract extensions of Jason Tatum, Donovan Mitchell, and De'Aaron Fox to max extensions, I really liked them. I, I think Donovan Mitchell is worth everything to the Utah Jazz. I think De'Aaron Fox stay, staying in Sacramento, I think is kind of a significant deal because I thought the Kings did really well in the draft. They drafted Ty, Tyrese Holt. Uh, Hardbomb in free in the draft with the 12th overall pick, and and and, and the Kings did that did that because they they didn't know uh, where, where De'Aaron Fox was was going. Out. They didn't know where his head was at. But to get De'Aaron Fox back and pair him up uh, uh, with, with with the new talent coming in, I think that's a significant deal to the Sacramento Kings. And I I you have to think they'll be. In in the mix uh, for when it, when it comes to making the playoffs, and I really like what the Kings have done, and Jason Tatum obviously with the Celtics, I think that, that I think he he's worth every everything to them. Obviously, uh, Gordon Hayward leaving Boston allowed some financial flexibility for Danny Ainge to hand him that contract. So three players from the class of 2017. Uh, got big paydays, and also you throw in Freddie Van Fleet, who signed the richest contract in NBA history from an undrafted free agent. He he signed a four-year, eighty-five million dollar deal, and I love what the, what the Toronto Raptors have been doing, uh, in- investing in value, and obviously they are the. Is that they they have they don't have notable names, but but they are damn well coached and they're well constructed as well. So I really like what the Philadelphia 76ers have done. They invested young in guards and value in the draft and in trades. They added a perimeter shooter in Danny Green while offsetting Al Horford's bad contract. And Daryl Morey's wheeling and dealing makes the Sixers an interesting team to watch with Doc Rivers as the head coach. And I mean, if, if there was any, any team that needed a significant head coaching upgrade in the East, it had to have been the Philadelphia 76ers, and Brett, Brett Brown wasn't going to be the answer for Philadelphia, and they knew that. I also like what the Brooklyn Nets did, as they factor in uh, what they want to do to make a run at the East this year. They re-signed Joe Harris to a four-year deal. The Nets used a first-round pick to trade for Landry Shamed, while Kevin Durant will, will come back healthy. I think the East overall will be stronger and more competitive too, but I think it's going to be wide open too. I I, I think the Knicks did, did some good things. I like some of the things the Washington Wizards did. They they, they signed Davis Burton's the, the Latvian native to a five-year contract worth eighty million dollars. And I think the the Eastern Conference uh, with with the uh, with the multitude of different moves th- this week, I think that they'll, the East is going to be very interesting. And what are the Milwaukee Bucks going to do after they uh, acquired Drew Holiday? Now they have a a, a a big three in Giannis Antetokounmpo, Chris Middleton, and Drew Holiday. But 
Well, I I think a lot of the weight on Milwaukee is going to rest on on, on the on the tall body of Giannis Antetokounmpo, and and we're gonna have to see if if Milwaukee did enough uh, this off season to extend a contra- extend a supermax deal to Giannis uh, in. In the, in the MVP conversation. So, with that in mind, we are going to end this here. I'll be he- back here on Wednesday to uh, go over 16 games to, 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 to pick against the spread for Thanksgiving weekend. And, and until then, this is John Flynn signing off and saying I'll, I'll be back on the podcast on Wednesday. So long, everybody.